would shape our hearts and it would shape our minds. And Lord, we pray that we would, uh, we would see you, that your spirit would be at work in our eyes and in our minds to understand the wondrous things that come from your word. Would you do that today in Christ's name for our good and for your glory? Amen. So if you would, turn in your, ba- your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 2. Habakkuk chapter 2. We're going to pick up in verse 18, Habakkuk chapter 2. So if, if you were here last week, last week we looked at the first four of five woes that are here in Habakkuk chapter 2. Woe to him who does all these various things. And so we saved the last woe for today, and we did it for a reason. If as you've turned to chapter 2, if on your way down to verse 18, if you notice as you're looking over the chapter, the first four of these statements of woe from God, they all start in the same way. They all start by saying, woe to him, which makes sense. That's how you would expect to start a statement of woe, right? But not this one. This one is set up first by a question. And the question is, what profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. So setting it up this way makes it stand out from the other four statements of woe. And it tells us that this one is significant. In fact, the reason why I set this aside is that this section is a crucial point in the whole of this little book that we've been reading. So don't forget, as we start to read today, do not forget what's happening here. Habakkuk has come to God with this question that is agonizing him. Why is the Lord not doing anything? So if you stop and you think about that question for a minute, why is the Lord not doing anything? you'll begin to see why this little section about the idol worship of nations is very important. God makes it clear, and God must make it clear, the prophet is not speaking to an idol. The prophet's not talking to an idol. He mocks the very idea of an idol who's not able to do anything. Idols don't act on the world because idols can't act on the world. Idols aren't able to act in this world. So this is the very height of the world's foolishness. This is the final judgment against the Chaldeans. They reject the actual creator in favor of more comfortable gods. Ones that they can control because, in fact, they made these gods up themselves. So let's read what he says. He says, what prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker, speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. So think about for a minute here how often we've seen do a little Old Testament perusal in your mind and bring to mind the stories of the Old Testament. How often have you seen the story of God against the idols of the nations show up in the Old Testament accounts, right? Probably my favorite story is the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel, right, with the prophets of Baal. They're crying out. The the prophets of Baal are pleading with their, their God. They're cutting themselves. And you read, and as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. That's 1 Kings 18, 29. But then what happens? Elijah comes up, and Elijah has his altar there. And what does he do? He says, hey, fill up these buckets and pour them all over my altar. And then he says, do it again. And then he says, do it again three times. Let's cover this in water. Verse 
And then he says, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. What a perfect story. But Judah, sadly continued to be drawn away and enticed by the worshiping of the idols of the other nations, despite its own history. You know, it's hard to understand this. When you think about the story of Scripture, it's hard to understand this if all that you and I are doing is that we're just reading Scripture, but we're not also considering what it says about that time period and those people but also what it says about us and our own hearts as well. We look at the Israelites and you think when you read the stories and the way that the authors present the stories to us about the Israelites seeing such amazing things from God and then within a generation they've got idols set up on the high places and they're worshiping other gods and the temple is being abandoned and we see all of that happening and we think how could they do that? I mean, we don't even have to go back to the time of Elijah from Habakkuk. We can just go back a couple of generations. And idols and idol worship was everywhere. Just one generation back. But we could go back a couple generations and we could look at that story of Hezekiah that we saw and we looked at in Sunday school a few weeks back. And we see another example in the story of Hezekiah of God's reality versus the fake gods of Israel. So the king of Assyria, just a couple generations ago, the king of Assyria, his name was Sennacherib, he had come down, he had surrounded Judah, he was going to crush Judah, but King Hezekiah was one of those very rare creatures that lived in Judah. He was a faithful king. You don't have many of those, but Hezekiah was one, and so he interceded before God on behalf of his people, and God listened to his king, and here's what happened. And that night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adrimelech and Sherezar, his sons, struck him down with the sword and escaped into the land of Ararat, and Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. Did you see it there? Where was Sennacherib when his sons came and murdered him? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob could drive out an entire nation all by himself that's encamped in his land. But the God of Sennacherib could not even protect him within his own house. And so we shake our heads, right? These foolish people. I just wish they would get it, you know? I mean, by the time you get done with the book of Second Chronicles, you're just like, I just wish you guys would get it. I mean, y'all should have gotten it a long time ago, to be honest with you. As we're reading it, it makes so much sense to us. Of course, we would choose the God who is there, the God who speaks, he's not silent, the God who acts upon the world. Of course, we would choose him over these homemade idols. But here's the funny thing about the Bible, and here's the funny thing about reading the Bible. It is way too easy for you and I to read the Bible, see what makes sense in the Bible, walk away from our reading of the Bible that made sense to us when we were reading it, and never connect it to our real lives. 
Never connect it to what's actually happening in our hearts as well. So let's not do that today. I don't know the last time that you carved a little statue and you prayed to it. I mean, many people still do that. But that's not the only way to worship idols. And it's not the main way that we worship idols today. People all around us, and you may be one of them, make sacrifices to their gods every day. And they live their lives sacrificing to their gods. People go stress shopping, spending their money to ease their hearts and to find comfort in this life. What is that if that's not false worship of a false god that can't satisfy you? People hide away in their rooms and they sacrifice their time and their relationships and their purity. And in return for their sacrifice, they ask their God for a moment of escape and peace. People sacrifice everything they have. They make themselves living sacrifices for things like status or success or success for them, or success for their children. We even still sacrifice human lives in our culture, throwing babies on the altar of the God of convenience, throwing young men and women onto the altar of pleasure. All we have done, and we need to have this in our mind, is all we have done in the thousands of years between this moment and our moment is we have streamlined the process of idol worship so much that it can all happen in our heads and it doesn't need a little statue to focus on. That's all that's happened. If you're looking at this passage and you're thinking, those foolish people, we have got to take a deep breath and you have to ask yourself, what is it that you are sacrificing in your life And what are you sacrificing it to? And what do you want to get back for your sacrifice? Because if the Creator is not at the heart of your desires, what is that but idolatry? So this morning, first, as we look at this, let's look at the teacher of lies. The teacher of lies. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. So the answer to God's question here in the text is obvious. There is no prophet to an idol made by a human, right? It's nothing more than... When you look at only power that it has is the perceived power that the maker of that idol gave to it, right? So keep that word in mind. If you're taking notes, write that word down. Perceived power. The perceived power that the maker of that idol gave to it. An idol is created by someone and it's created for someone. You read it right there. For its maker trusts in his own creation. So this gets at the fundamental difference between Yahweh, the God of Israel, and these idols. And this is what Habakkuk has to see in light of his questions. Don't forget that. Habakkuk's questions are what provoked this response from God. So his questions are still in mind here. With an idol, people are really trusting in themselves. With an idol, people are really just trusting in themselves. They have determined, now follow, follow how this works, they have determined that this idol is what they need, this idol will be able to save them, and this idol will be their hope. They determined that. We have simply streamlined it in our own day. How many people have determined for themselves that marriage is what will save them? 
and they will sacrifice to that idol and they will trust that it will bring them through. And when they're on the other side of achieving that, they're going to be okay. How many people have determined that a better job, that a different home, that a different friend group, that more money, that the car that they have been wanting or the vacation that they're going on is going to be their salvation from their struggles? If I can only just get this, if I can only just get to that point, and we fix our minds on whatever that is, and we sacrifice to it in hopes that it will bless us with the blessing that we want. But here's the thing. With an idol, you get to decide what you are trusting in. Do you see that? The maker of the idol gets to decide, I want this idol to have six arms because I think a six-armed God would be pretty handy for me, right? That's what I'm going to trust in. I'm going to make a God who has power over the fields and the harvest because, frankly, that's what I really need. So I'm going to create that God. We get to decide what we're trusting in. I'm going to say it again. With an idol, you get to decide what you're trusting in. And this is still what people do. People decide for themselves what will save them. And then they fixate on that thing. And they give that thing perceived power to rescue them. I can guarantee you that you have all done it. I've done it. We have all, at some point or another, in our minds and in our hearts, fixated on one thing in this world, and we made the decision, I will be better, I will be blessed if I get that thing. And I'm, gonna, I'm going to sacrifice to it. Kids, we do this. You guys do this. I know you do this. You see something and you're just like, I just have to have that thing. And life is going to be dark and sad until I get it. Life will not have meaning. until. I mean, we do this every Christmas. We do this on birthdays. We do this, you know, when we get a little bit of money burning a hole in our pocket. And we go, I just can't be happy. until That's idol worship. That's us deciding. Once I reach this point in my life, I'll be at peace finally. We decide who and what our salvation will be. But in light of Habakkuk's gut-wrenching questions here, as he sees what's happening in his nation, and as he hears what's going to happen in the world, there is no hope that can stand up to that from an idol. These idols are teachers of lies. They promise salvation, but they can't deliver it. They're teachers of lies. But here's the thing. I'm going to actually defend the idols for just a minute here. You weren't expecting that, but I'm going to defend the idols here for just a minute. They promise salvation, but they can't deliver. So whatever you have in your mind that you think will be your salvation whether it's a small salvation, right? Like getting out of this room that's uncomfortable. Or maybe it's a big salvation. It's a salvation from sickness or violence or some other major broken thing in this world. Whatever it is, the idol can't deliver on the promise of salvation. But here's where I'm going to defend the idols. This is really important. They can't deliver on that salvation because they didn't actually promise it. That's not how this worked. The maker of that idol created it. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. The maker put those words in the idol's mouth. The maker determined the salvation that the idol was going to give. You and I, we put words in the mouths of our idols. We hear promises from them that we made up. 
We decided that our idols can deliver, and we put our hope in them delivering. We decided that. The idols didn't do anything. That's the point God's making. The idols are nothing. Right? But we worship them because of the things that we have put on them. But God is telling his prophet, that's not how it works in the real world. As we have seen over and over again, his answers are his own. Nobody puts words in the mouth of God. And the words that God speaks are truth. So when you trust God, Habakkuk, that's who you are actually trusting. You are trusting someone who has nobody behind him. Nobody made God. He's Yahweh. I am who I am. He, he simply exists. He's the only thing that is entirely self-existent. So Habakkuk, when you ask me to determine what those answers are, you don't get to tell God what the answers are that he gives you because God's not an idol. God didn't have a maker. These idols are teachers of lies. They cannot deliver. They will not deliver for the Chaldeans. They will not deliver for Judah. And today for us, they still will not deliver. And yet, how prone are we to putting words in the mouths of things that we think will save us? How different is God so the second thing I want us to look at, so first, the teachers of lies. The second thing I want us to look at is, the second point is twisting God's own things. Twisting God's own things. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake. To a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. So now last week, we talked about how God wove into these statements of woe a picture of how sin affected not just people, but it affected God's whole created world, right? So if you were to glance back up at the first four statements of woe, in every single one of them, you see God referencing his created order for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Verse 11, for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Verse 14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Verse 17, the violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. So in each of those statements, he talks about how the evil of Babylon was evil against all of God's creation, not just against Judah and the people in Judah, and so as we said last week, God was showing Habakkuk that he sees this evil too. He's not blind to it. He is watching. And in fact, he sees it on a much deeper level than Habakkuk even saw it. Sin should not be in the world. And sin is a, an offense against God's created design. So now here today, what have they done? In verse 11, we saw that the stone and the wood were crying out because they were being used for evil. It's not what God designed them for. They were being twisted just by the motivations of the people who were using them to build houses. And God's own creation was groaning, as Paul might say in Romans 8. Paul, God's own creation was groaning because of how it was being used for evil. But look what they have done here. Here we see the height of perversion and brokenness. Men are taking God's creation and twisting it into objects that they worship. As Paul would say, they're worshiping the creature rather than the creator. And again, God points out how absolutely ridiculous and dumb this is. It's just dumb. I mean, why would you take God's creation and worship it when God's right there? 
Why would you make the good things that God has created for you into your gods when God is right there? He says, can this teach? That's how the ESV translates it. Other translations might read, can it give guidance? And I actually think that might be a little bit more clear for us. Can these pieces of wood and stone guide you? Which again, this gets right to the heart of the book. What is it that Habakkuk is asking for from God? He's asking for guidance, right? He's asking God to guide him through what he's seeing here in this world. Help him to see what's happening. And God is saying man-made saviors cannot get to the depths of our need from God. Man-made idols cannot touch the depths of what we need from God. They can't answer. All we do is we impose our answers on them and then they, we act like they've answered us. What we need to see, because again, most of you hopefully, aren't making little statues. But it is still possible for us to take God's good things that he has made and turn them into our idols. You know one of the things that God made that is good that we can turn into an idol is his own word. How often do we come to his word and we've already decided the answer we're going to find in it. And we put words in God's mouth by using his own scripture and twisting it. In our class yesterday, Travis reminded us all, Satan was a master at that, wasn't he? Taking God's own word and twisting it. You and I, we may not be as masterful at it as Satan, but we can give him a run for our money sometimes. And take God's good thing and make it into an idol because we put our control over it. But we do this with all sorts of things. We take God's good design for the world. Parents can make children their idols and their children's lives their idols. Children are a great thing. They're a blessing from the Lord. And we can turn them into an idol. We can make anything into an idol, quite frankly. We're really good at it. And that's what he is pointing out to Habakkuk here. That's not actually how it works with God. Words in his mouth. You, you have to hear the guidance that he gives you. And then you have to submit to the guidance that he gives you. That's what it means to actually be God. And so God points out there's no breath at all in these idols. They're not truly alive. In other words, this is all make-believe. Habakkuk, they're just making this stuff up. And there's judgment that's going to come on them because they're just making this stuff up and they're using all of my stuff that I made to make their gods. But do you know what wasn't made up? The history of Israel was not made up. The plagues of the Exodus were not made up. The parting of the Red Sea was not made up. I mean, the prophecies that God made that came to pass, they were not made up. I mean, heck. Look around. I mean, where did all these trees and animals come from? I mean, despite what our world preaches, there had to be a first cause that caused all of this. And then for it to be designed so perfectly, to function so exactly, I mean, who made this world? That's not made up. And this gets right to the core of the book of Habakkuk. Nobody made him. He is not controlled by us. 
He is not made in our image. And as much as we are prone to try and put words into his mouth, he won't have it. He's not like these idols who only exist for the benefit of their maker who gave them perceived power. God has no perceived power. He has all power. He simply exists. Outside of us, God is an absolute presence. If we were to all cease to exist, He would not. He could not. And when a faithful and a sincere man comes to God with questions, and he asks them faithfully, and he asks them sincerely, as Habakkuk has done, he is going to get God's answers. He is going to get God's guidance. And it's going to... And there's nothing that a man like Habakkuk can do in the face of that, but humble himself and worship. And that brings us to the final piece here of God's response. And this sums up everything for Habakkuk. I'm going to call this title, God's Words Are His Own. Verse 20. But, so in contrast to these idols that the Chaldeans are worshiping and that they are going to be judged for, but the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. So let's do something here for a minute. Let's just pretend for a moment that you and I were into making idols like this. That instead of building our idols in our mind the way our culture does and, and building them up in our hearts, you know, the factory of idols that we have there, let's just say we still made little statues. Go ahead and think about what kind of statue you'd want to make. And then we've made it. Now the question is, do we sit back and do we watch them and do we see what our idol is going to do? We've made it now. What do we do with it? Of course, we don't. I mean, that, that's God's whole point here. When we make false gods, we actually control them. We actually determine what they're going to do and what they're not going to do. We determine what they're capable of and what they're not capable of. We give them power. When you say, if I only had that, I would be happy, what you've done is you have given that thing power over you. It's not real. It's perceived power. It's a lie because it's a teacher of lies. But that's what we do. We're the ones who decide what to give these gods in order to get what we want. We make the terms of our relationship with these gods, don't we? Sometimes we'll even set up just weird rules in our heads. If I get to this point, if I do that much, I can worship at the altar of this god. If I give four hours to work, I can go and I can do this thing and worship at the idol of my god. And so we get, we get comfort, I think, from the fact that we think that we can control our gods, and that's really all we want. We want control. We want control over our destiny. We want control over our future. And it's much more comfortable to make a god that we can control so we can kind of make sure that we manipulate what we want. We want our gods and we want our saviors to be under our control. Right? And this goes so far that, you know, that little statue that you made is not going to get up and it's not going to walk anywhere. We have to put that statue where we want it to be. You want that statue on your table? You want your God on your dining room table? Put your God on your dining room table. I'm not going to stop you. you. You want the gods that you sacrifice to to be in your bedroom? That's your call. You want to decide that the gods that you meet and worship are outside so that you can worship them when you go hiking? That's where they are because it's your call. After all, you made those gods up. You decided what your savior would be. You made the idol and you placed it where you wanted it. That was best for you. But the creator, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob 
The point he's making here is you don't put him anywhere. The statement is the Lord is in his holy temple. You did not put him there. You did not decide that that was the best place for him to be. This is a clear statement that God is exactly where he wants to be. He is on his own throne. He is in the place where he will be worshipped in the way that he determines that he'll be worshipped. This statement is a way of telling Habakkuk, God sets the terms for how he is worshipped. We don't. He's not like these idols. These idols are puppets. Your idols, you control the terms with them. You make up the bargains with them. You decide where you even find them and how you do it. You should not ever think that you get to do that with the Creator God of Scripture. He's not like that. Isaiah says it perfectly. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is my place, the place of my rest? Habakkuk does not like what he sees God doing in the world. It does not make sense to him. But we need to give Habakkuk credit as a faithful man. He asks God about what he's seeing, but he doesn't treat God like he made God up. He doesn't come to God asking about this, already having decided what the right answer ought to be. We saw that at the end of chapter 1 when he made his second questions and then he said that he would wait. He would wait for the response. And then he would respond and the way that that's phrased gives you the picture. It's not that he already had his response in mind. He's saying, nope, the order of things is I asked you a question. I'm going to wait for your response. And then once you've given me your response and I know what your response is, then I'll respond to that. How often do we ask our question, but we've already charted the entire direction that the conversation has to go in in order for us to be happy? I've already charted out what God's response needs to be to me and then what my response needs to be to Him. Habakkuk is showing us something different. It's showing us and reminding us our God is not controlled by us. And his answers are not controlled by us. He is not like the idols that we make. Nobody controls the Lord. Let all the earth keep silence before him. You do not tell him a thing. You may put words in your idol's mouth, but there's nothing you can say to the Creator when he is sitting in his temple and he is speaking forth the truth. And if you stop for a minute here, you realize this all, everything I've said today, this all actually just makes perfect sense. Doesn't it? I mean, when you really stop and you think about it, it makes perfect sense of the world. It makes perfect sense of creation. It makes perfect sense of us and our hearts that there would be a creator who made this beautiful, complex awe-inspiring and amazing world with beautiful and complex people in it. And he had the wisdom, he had the intelligence, he had the power to make all of this out of nothing. Simply by speaking everything into existence. And nobody was behind him putting those words into his mouth when he said, let there be light. Why on earth and how can it be that you and I can think to ourselves that that being must answer to us and that that being must let us control the relationship that we have with him? That doesn't make any sense. That there would be a being this powerful that would make us 
And then that somehow we could put him on a leash and we could take him wherever we want to go and we could train him to do tricks for us when we want him to do tricks for us. That doesn't make any sense, right? I hope everybody sees that. What makes sense about an actual God, and again, I just wish I could be like God and like everybody's bones shake. What makes sense about him is that you and I don't get to set the terms of anything. He's God. This is the climactic moment of God's answer to Habakkuk. Who did Habakkuk ask his question to? He did not ask his question to an idol. He did not ask his question to a false God that he could control. He asked his question to the creator of the universe, the untamable, uncontrollable creator of the universe whose answers are his own. The Chaldeans will fail because they have chosen false gods over God. And they will fail. They will. We read actually a piece of that even this morning in Sunday school from Jeremiah. I'll pick up actually, it's funny because I had this, I had this in my, my notes. I'll, I'll pick up from where Travis was reading in Jeremiah 51. Though Babylon should mount up to heaven and though she should fortify her strong height, yet destroyers would come from me against her, declares the Lord. A voice, a cry from Babylon, the noise of great destruction from the land of the Chaldeans. For the Lord is laying Babylon waste and stilling her mighty voice. Their waves roar like many waters. The noise of their voice is raised. For a destroyer has come upon her, upon Babylon. Her warriors are taken. Their bows are broken in pieces. For the Lord is a God of recompense. He will surely repay which should call to our mind the five statements of woe that he gave to Habakkuk. He is repaying. I will make drunk her officials and her wise men. Does that sound familiar too? Look at the fourth statement of woe. Her governors, her commanders, and her warriors, they shall sleep a perpetual sleep and not wake, declares the king whose name is the Lord of hosts. And her high gates shall be burned with fire, the people's labor for nothing, and the nations weary themselves only for fire, which again, just look back up at the previous statement of woe, and you see that exact same wording. Babylon, the Chaldeans here, have put their trust in the gods that they have made. In fact, we saw it at the beginning of Habakkuk, one of the first things that God said about these Chaldeans. Who was their God? Their strength. Their strength was their God, not the idols. When you and I, when we choose to worship the idols of our own making, our, we're making our God ourselves. And God will not have that. And God is telling Habakkuk, that's not how this works. But let's end here. God is God. His answers are His own. But here's the good news. You and I, we can, we can make up all sorts of saviors for ourselves. We can give them powers over our lives that they don't really have but it makes us feel better. Here is the height of our foolishness right here. Scripture tells us that God is happy to be our Savior. You know, it's like we settle for digging through the trash for food, thinking it will keep us alive when God has set a feast for us and invited us to it. We make up imaginary gods who end up letting us down. Over and over again, our lives can be a series of disappointments as our little gods that we have made up, whatever they are, however they apply in your life, those things that you are hoping are going to be your salvation, they let us down. They let our hearts down over and over again. 
our satisfy our hearts. That's what's amazing about this. He'll do more than just satisfy our hearts. He will go so far in satisfying our hearts that it should feel to you and I like He took our old ones away and gave us brand new ones. Ones that love His world. Ones that love Him completely. Ones that see that you are in His hand. And no matter what is happening in your life, None of those things can take... You already have the Savior who is going to bring you through whatever you're in. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing. You have already, if you are a Christian, if you are in Christ, you've already been saved. And your heart needs to fix on that. And your heart needs to rest in that rather than your heart aching after and running after these other little gods. It needs to come back to God Himself. Because that, now why did that happen? It happened because that's what God decided to do. Don't miss that. Nobody put the words of hope in His mouth. Nobody put the words of love in His mouth. Nobody put the words of grace and mercy and forgiveness in God's mouth. He of His own power sitting in His holy temple with the world silent before Him made the decision by the counsel of His own holy will to save, to give salvation, and to give it freely. But here's the thing, and this is where I want to end before we take the Lord's Supper. Because this is, I think, what we wrestle with in our everyday lives. You and I do not get to control God's salvation over us. You do not get to set the terms of God's salvation. And you do not get to set the terms of what God does with your life. You don't get to negotiate the salvation that God gives. The Lord isn't like our fake idols. His answers are His own, and His offer of salvation is entirely His. He's determined how He would save you. But the beautiful truth is, He's determined how He would save you. Why would we go looking for something else when the Creator has determined? Here is salvation for you. It's free. Take it. Salvation from God comes through His Son, Jesus Christ. And salvation's an all-or-nothing opportunity. You don't get to say, I want the part of salvation that saves me from judgment, but I don't want the part that means I belong to Jesus completely. If you want salvation, if you want the satisfaction that was made by the one who made us, that is, it's perfectly designed, right? It's not an aftermarket product. It's not a third-party insurance plan. The designer who designed you and I made the perfect way, perfectly designed for you and I to find our joy and our satisfaction and our peace. He did that, but it's his own. If you want his salvation, you must come his way. And so we're about to take the Lord's Supper here. Christian, when you take this today, ponder on how this was God's way of salvation. Jesus Christ coming to earth, coming into the fallen and sinful world, doing what you and I could not do by living perfectly and never sinning, so that those who deserve the kind of judgment that God is talking about in Habakkuk chapter 2, these statements of woe, that's us, that judgment would not be poured out on you and I. We would not be punished for our sin. We would not be held guilty for our sin. We would not be held condemned, even though we should be. Because Jesus took it for us. He took it in our place. That is God's way of salvation. Jesus is our Savior. And there is no other. So when you take the Lord's Supper today, Make sure you understand that you are making a statement. 
by taking this, you are making a statement that your salvation comes from Him. And that you are casting off false gods and idols that you think are going to save you. And you are throwing yourself completely on the fact that Jesus has saved you and your life is His now. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I hope you see what we've been saying here. There is no other way, but there is a way. God made it. The God who, His answers are His own. He determines the end from the beginning. And that way is Jesus Christ. Would you repent? Would you confess your sins? And would you trust that God is actually able to save us when nothing else would? Habakkuk learned God is patient. God is willing to engage with his sincere and faithful children. But do not ever mistake, make the mistake of forgetting who we are talking about here. If you just glance down real quick, you'll see where we're going in a couple of weeks in chapter 3. This sets up chapter 3 beautifully. Habakkuk understands what God is telling him here, and Habakkuk responds in exactly the right way. Worship and prayer. Let's do that. Father, we thank you so much. Forgive us, Lord, for how prone specific ways in which we do that is that we create little saviors in our lives. And we look to them and we put perceived power on those little saviors instead of looking and resting in our actual savior. Father, would you open up our eyes to see the way that we might be doing that even today? Lord, how we might be making a person in our life a little savior and we have put power into that person and we think that person and their actions will save us from whatever we're in. Lord, if there's a, something material that we own or that we want to own, Lord, that we, we have put perceived power, if I can own this, if there's a, a status, Lord, in, in our life that we think if I could only get there and we give power to these things and we make them little saviors, Lord, would you call our minds back to the fact that you've given us a Savior? And you haven't just given us a Savior and left us alone either, but you gave us Jesus Christ, and then you gave us your Word so that we would know how to live. We would know how to look to Him for our hope instead of looking to these false idols. Lord, would you tear those down in our hearts today? And would you just build up afresh the hope and the peace and the joy that comes from knowing you are God, you have answered. And the blood of Jesus Christ and His broken body are sufficient for everything that we face. Lord, we praise You and thank You for that. In Christ's name, amen.